sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. And you can send us mail at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And that's how this show rolls. Yeah, doesn't it, does. it Brian? Uh, right. This one is from Kenny. Uh, he writes the show this week saying, you guys have been on a streak of crazy manager stories. Uh, recently, you were making fun of Alan <laughs> Klein for being an accountant. Yes, that happened on this show. Uh, it, but it made me think there is another accountant turned manager. Can you think of one? I couldn't think of one. Um, no, nah, it would take me forever to figure it out. Yeah, so, so Kenny brings up this guy, Brian Lane who managed Yes. He goes on to say, I heard he even ruined Yes, but I don't really know the details. Do tell. You got you got anything on this guy? Nah. So I, I don't know him at all. I had to, I I had to dig. Interesting cat. In his career, he will work with a lot of names. Yes is the biggest. Uh, he'll work with all their spinoffs. He works with AHA when they reform in the late 90s, which is a weird accolade. Uh, it, he manages, this one's for you. I'm taking it to Sweden. He manages A-teens. Do you remember that group? Fuck yeah, I do, man. The 18, they were the they were an ABBA cover band, tribute band. Yeah, they were like just an ABBA tribute and, and became and like they, an actual pop they be, band. They became a band. Well, and, you know, Yes is sort of the same case, right? Like they start as a cover band and then they hear King Crimson and decide to write nine-minute songs. Back to Brian Lane. Now, I will start by saying that this is a good example of rumor and innuendo because I had to dig to figure out what exactly Kenny's referencing here, and it led me to a story that I was not familiar with. But I will say that I think that the only people who think he ruined Yes are the guys who were in Yes. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it was really his fault yes. to me. Uh, and he himself, Brian Lane, will claim that this move that he gets blamed for was definitely something that Yes did to themselves. But before we get there, we probably do need to widen this conversation about Yes a little bit. And, and we can talk about sort of the core timeline of yes which is i mean they're around forever they'll have 20 something members uh over their course of time but there's like a classic lineup and there is a classic period which is like 68 to 81 How many of the members can you name off the top of your head? Oh, man. What is classic life? Math. But also, this is like math school. Okay. <laughs> Rick Rick Wakeman plays plays. Rick, Rick Wakeman so comes in. So there's a guy later. named Tony K, and then Rick Wakeman comes in. He, Rick Wakeman gets sort of associated more for some reason with Who, yes. But. So Tony K, what did he do? Because I, I don't know him. He was the keyboard player before Wakeman. Oh, okay. So John Anderson was a singer. Of and course. Chris Squire was a bass player. You got it. And, Peter Banks is the guitarist. Uh-huh. And then there's there's a drummer, Bill Brufford. Uh, oh, I forgot about the drummer. Gosh. So, okay. It, it is, you know, we've talked about these long songs, right? And in a minute, we'll get to how the long songs bring Brian Lane and Yes together. But 
I, I did want to go ahead and, and point out what this letter pointed out, which is he did start in accounting. He, he at some point in some interview said that uh, accounting is, quote, the only profession that has never been the subject of a sitcom. And I was trying to disprove that, but I can't think of one. Is there a sitcom about accountants that I'm forgetting? There has to be. I mean, technically, Gosh. you could say The Office has accountants in it. I mean, I think Brian Lane obviously has has a little bit of a levity about this whole thing, and he understands. But he there's a quote where he says, you know, he just really wanted to figure out how to get in the music industry, and he starts to to realize there's like a research and development aspect of it that he wants to get involved in. And then he he will become a record promoter. This like happens almost by accident. We've talked about Mickey Most on the show before. He the story goes that he like literally sees Mickey Most on the street, and will end up becoming a record promoter and and will promote the animals. He'll promote Donovan. He'll promote Jeff what? Beck. Uh, Jeff, what? And this is like going around trying to get people to buy, sell, and play the <laughs> records, right? Wow. I mean, how awesome to go from accounting to being a rock star maniac running around with a credit card. Well, yeah, and like, he, that's he, what he just that is. he figures out the tricks. And he goes to so and after oh, he has the Donovan? Cred, Oh my God! He has the cred of Mickey Most, and then this leads to his relationship with other guys. So in the '60s, he'll do work for Robert Stigwood, which means he gets to promote the Bee Gees and Cream. And in '67, this is what this is his star maker. He gets approached by a guy named Brian Morrison, who is an agent at Columbia who has just signed a band, and they're trying to figure out how to work them. And the name of the band is Pink Floyd. God, wow! So, so wow! So Brian Brian Lane for everybody if just to catch you up just did all that stuff i i mean his fingers are all over the 60s musically but it's all behind the scenes and he's always has this vision of being more involved being more not necessarily on the stage but a little more involved in shaping things and not just pushing records on people so he wants to manage an artist and so he does what all aspiring managers do which is find someone to manage uh, like his his cleaning lady's son, or, I, or dude, right? So this is I, it's funny that you know that this is a true story, as silly as it sounds. He finds out that his cleaning lady's son has gotten a part as the artful Dodger. Is that what it is? And Oliver and he, th- this guy will actually be his name's Jack Wild, and he will be his his ticket to yes. This is the connecting thread to how he gets to yes. Is this fifteen year old kid? There's a quote when he's talking about him, and he says. Not many 15-year-olds smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and get nominated for an Oscar in their first year after leaving stage school. Through Jack, I went to Hollywood and I learned a tremendous amount about the world of show business. But it's not just show business that he'll learn about, right? Because he's hanging out with a teenager, which is a little sketchy. But teenagers, you have one, I have one, they know they know where the new shit is, right? And so one night, this kid that he's managing has this idea he's like bro we got to go see this band i've heard about they're playing at the marquee and they're called yes and so to get us back to this idea about yes playing long songs jack's quote to him according to brian lane years later is they're great but their songs are too long and that's why they'll never have a hit and brian says his response to that is i thought quote if you apply that same theory to art there would have never been a mural that's a great quote, really. It really it really shows his ability, like illustrates his ability to think uh, around the ideas of how other people would think, obviously. If yeah, 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 jump, yeah. Jump into these jobs doing this. 
this writer, Daryl Isla, yeah, he did this banger of a hangout session with Brian Lane in 2016, and they just published it as a piece in Louder Sound where they sort of just let Brian yeah. Lane reminisce about his, his history in music. This is him talking about his entry into working with the band. This is from Brian Lane. Uh, talking about the night that he goes with Jack Wilde to the marquee. Quote, the place was jam-packed and they were fantastic. I heard a whisper that they had just fired their manager. Uh, his name was Roy Flynn. And they were looking for a new manager. So Jack and I went backstage and we met John Anderson. And I told him that I'd like to have a shot at being their manager. And I gave him my verbal resume about the bands I'd broken. And John was impressed by two magic words, Pink Floyd. And said, okay, we'll give you a shot. We've got a new album coming out in three weeks' time called The Yes Album, and you've got three months. If we get to number one, you've got the job. Ultimatums are sometimes how amazing stories start. This is, <laughs> is this what's about to happen. <laughs> well, it's actually not, it, it? It's not bad, right? Like this, uh, it, there's some false flags in this story. It, he goes and works the record. He runs into a slight problem. The The week the Yes album is released, there's a postal strike. <laughs> Shut the front door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, what, a, what a drag. Like, and, and so he says, oh, and this, this is a quote from him, what? the only chart that all the newspapers and the BBC used at the time was that of Richard Branson's upstairs shop in Oxford Street, which was technically the first Virgin Records store. And so he says that, I went there and simply bought enough Yes albums to ensure that it was the number one selling record in that store. I, I'm stunned. <laughs> the, first, I, I, I'm sure that happened a lot. I mean, that Damn. happened all the time, right? Like, I mean, he, he's right. borrowing from this thing he learned, and you already sort of alluded to this as a record promoter of, like, you have a, you have a line of credit and you make it happen. Rob Mick to pay Keith. Instead of Rob Peter to pay Paul. I like that. We um, can make that catch on. <laughs> so That's so crazy. They do end up getting a national impact out of that. And now he, he they don't actually go to number one, they go to number four. But it was you know, I think the record before that was it got to like forty five and and petered out. So getting to number four was pretty good. And so they give Brian Lane the job. He now becomes the manager for yes. And it's worth pointing out that there's a certain detail that's irrelevant, but makes a larger point about this whole exercise we're doing. And that is that the version of the story I told you is from Brian Lane. Chris Squire from yes, at some point in the press has said that they met Brian Lane because they shared a hairdresser. So <laughs> not because he walked backstage with Jack Wilde and asked for the gig. Is it true? Does it matter? No, not really, but it does point <laughs> out that the, this tricky memory and narrative thing, right? And how everybody has their own version of the truth. So just remember, as we get to the core story here, the different versions of the same story may both be true and false to varying degrees. Yeah, but despite the fact that I think they could have been a bigger band, the early 70s, are they're still really good at them. Like, they're successful. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he, money and, they yeah. make it work. So uh, the quickest way through the story is just to sort of note that if you were to paint really broad strokes, the early 70s in Britain was like a really good time for prog rock. So... 72, 73, right in there, they're doing great. Uh, late 70s, not so much, because what starts to happen? Oh, uh, Sex Pistols? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So <laughs> so punk rock is, is breaking in Britain, and it becomes yeah. a little less cool to listen to nine-minute songs about antelopes or whatever they were singing about. So, it, you know, that is a broad generalization, and people would argue with that to a certain degree. But 
if there is anything antithetical to punk, it's definitely prog, right? It's like all the opposites. Fantastical lyrics, long drawn out songs, and embracing it from the corporate powers of the bee. Everybody's into it. Uh, it's the opposite of punk. So when tension hits yes, in this classic version of yes in the 70s, it gets attributed to a few things. One of them is this idea that the tides are changing in popular culture. But another one is that the band just sort of starts infighting, and this all circles around their ninth album called Tomato. I also, let's just stop for a second and enjoy that at a certain point in the 70s, you could be a band that made nine-minute songs and just named your records Tomato. Yes. See (laughs) what I did there? With with a giant picture of a tomato on the cover. Yeah. I I think that for those of us who aren't the biggest Yes fans, after the show, we we should go and, and... jump into some yes the early stuff so much different but the 80s stuff is great too they're great this ninth record they start recording it and they decide to record it like two of them stay in london and two of them like go to switzerland or somewhere where their other the record before this was recorded so they're not together in the same place the whole time plus they have a producer who something happens and he just like is a wall or or can't continue to work with them for some personal reason and so they just decide to take over as producers like well, we'll just produce it ourselves which in the case of a bunch of guys who've been playing music together for a long time and have strong personalities is not a great situation because there's no mediator Right. And so they just sort of argue about who's right all the time. And then third, Rick Wakeman, during the recording of this record, starts using some new synths and they they're just it's a disruption. Right. It's different. It sort of changes the sound a little bit. And so the record's not a total disaster commercially, but it it does end up marking the end of a certain era with this band. When John Anderson leaves the band. Right. Well, almost. So that happens when the next record process starts. So Tomato comes out, they tour on it. Okay. Things are still, there's a lot of tension. The 10th the record is going to end up being called Drama. And there are just, <laughs> which they had to have done on purpose. And there are just like factions in the band at this point, right? Creative differences. And one thing that gets forgotten is that these guys, because they get fame, especially in certain circles in the early 70s, they start putting their fingers in other pies so there there was a a certain point like in 76 or so where like every member releases a solo record and then they also are working on different projects and john especially is out there there's a lot going on there start to be disagreements within yes about what the new song should sound like because of all this countercultural stuff that's happening um there's some financial disagreements and i think anderson figures out that at some point the core band has been putting things on record without him and it all becomes a mess so Anderson leaves, Wakeman leaves with him, and there's a problem. Oh, I didn't know that Rick Wakeman left at the same time. Yeah, he or... left He left out of, like, defense of Anderson. Oh, oh. They totally. were boys, yeah. That's totally weird. I want to listen to all the solo records <laughs> so I can just, like... Because periodically I'll I'll throw on a I'll throw on Ace's solo record or Paul's solo record and it's cheesy, yeah, like yeah. completely. Okay, so Brian Lane has had I guess this is super successful for him and and it's it's kind of toast sort of. Yeah, I mean th- his biggest band has a fracture, right? He has other bands. Well, right? it, it's really funny. There's he's gained this reputation and he's gotten meetings and there's two stories he tells in that louder sound hangout session where he says that when he was in Montreux with yes in I guess 76 
that he gets this dinner with David Bowie. And David Bowie, like, wants him to take him on, right? So think about, we've talked about Tony DeFreeze. We've talked about where this is in in Bowie's. This is, like, roughly after Diamond Dogs, right around Diamond Dogs or whatever. So, like, this could have been his exit out of the Tony DeFreeze relationship. And he just decides to pass because he thinks he's too busy and it will conflict with his the interest he has in Yes. Also in 76... And, and these are, this is Lane telling these stories, as self-deprecating as they are. There's a show where Yes plays in front of 130,000 people at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. And what? There's this journalism, or this journalist backstage, Larry Maggot, who is like, hey, there's this singer from this part of the country who's, who does really well in Jersey and in Philly and, and in some places, and I've got him here tonight, and you should meet him. And he's like, dude, I am too busy. I got 130,000 people out there in the crowd, and I got to take care of Yes. And he passes on meeting to talk about managing Bruce Springsteen. Which, again, think about the idea of this guy who, you know, despite what Yes think about him here at the end of this story, is one of the more upstanding rock and roll managers from this period that I've ever read about. Uh, And how would it have been different? Two guys who got incredibly taken advantage of by their managers, Springsteen and Bowie if they had been with Brian Lane instead. Wow. It's a really interesting crossroads moment. Yeah. Oh, totally. Wow. I mean, Bowie especially. The more I learned about him from here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah. But, so Brian didn't turn everybody down or skip every meeting, though. Uh, at the time when the yes split happens, he has just started managing another band. that, And he he he's like looking for a solution, right, for yes. So he's like, here's here's maybe what you do. I've got this other act. Bring them in and let them do some songwriting for you. I'll tell them to write you a song, and then you'll just have some new material to put new new blood, you know, that you guys can sort of bounce off of. But the idea is, it's just a songwriting collab between his two acts, and so he connects them with these two guys he started managing in the last year, named the Buggles. <laughs> okay. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Biscuit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. So age difference with you and I. So class of 92. Uh, so my family got cable. Good God. Thank God they did. So <laughs> I had something to do. Uh, and and it, I don't know. We had like 30 channels. This was like 81 or something. We had HBO. 
but I had MTV and I saw MTV like right at the beginning and, and video killed the radio star was the first song that they played. I heard you on the wireless back in 52 lying awake intently tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. why they call themselves the buggles yeah they were gonna be the bugs right because it was like really creepy and and gross and someone talked shit to them one day and said something about them never being as you know as big as the beatles so they had this novel idea to kind of smash the two together (laughs) so imagine that being the idea of how you'd name your band so it's a joke it's it it totally is Uh, well how much do you know about them trevor Horn is the more famous of the two, and Jeff Downs is the other. And and they're interesting. Trevor is a producer, and he he does like he did commercial jingles and then punk bands, you know. And so obviously the jingles made the the cash. <laughs> well, and the other guy is a keyboard player, right? And he was in this group called She's French, who I desperately looked to see if I could find recordings by, and I could not. And that will dry up for him, and so he ends up at an audition. And it's the same audition that Trevor Horn is at. And it is an audition to play in the backing band for a singer named Tina Charles. Do you know Tina Charles? Is she like a contemporary with Donna Summer, sort of? Yeah. Like, I was at the Peddler's Mall, which for everyone that (laughs) doesn't live anywhere near where Brian and I live, it's this like... You know, it's like where an empty Kmart was. People have booths and they sell crap in it. And most of it's crap. There's you can buy. There's probably like 30,000 knives (laughs) in the store. But in the back, there's like a a, a king size sleigh bed with a mattress and it's all brand new. And there's all kinds of crap. And at some point I was walking down a a big aisle by myself and I feel love by Donna Summer came (laughs) on. And I was like, man, I wanted to be like, hey, make sure this is the 12 inch, the, the extended, uh, the extended mix. Tina Charles is sort of in that vein, right? And what happens with her is that this producer named Bidu gets wind of her and has had a little bit of success with matching singers and songs together and having a hit that he got to make some money on. And when he hears her, he thinks he can do it with her. So he is snagging her as the singer and then trying to put a band together that will will back her up so that they can record some songs and that and so he holds auditions and Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs this is where they meet yeah and, and, and Bidu he's he's from India and just lost to music history you know and he's like a really interesting guy we should stop down for even further for a second if we're going to talk about Bidu and talk about the song that got him famous so before Tina Charles he he accidentally has this massive hit with Carl Douglas. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, really yeah, that's Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> that's Carl Douglas. <laughs>
It's it's, it's an accidental B side case. Like we've talked about this sort of oh, thing, I, right? Oh, I didn't know it was a B side. Yeah. Well, oh my God. so he hires Carl Douglas to sing another song. They book a studio for three hours, and they record the other song in like two hours and twenty minutes. And then they're like, "Crap, we didn't do the B side." And so Bidu asks Carl, "Do you happen to have a song we could put on the B side?" He goes, "Oh yeah." <laughs> I've got this song called Kung Fu Fighting. And so in two takes and like 10 minutes of studio time, they whip out this song, Kung Fu Fighting. And and Bindu's like on the record being like, it doesn't matter because this is the B-side and no one's going to hear it. And now at least we have filler on the backside of this record. And there's a record company guy jumping up on top of the desk going, this is the A-side, people. Well, this is the A-side. And, and if you hear that story, it's really confusing as to why anyone would think that song should be an A-side. And so there's some context that you have to know, which is huh. at, at this point in the 70s, there has been, for the last decade or so, a subgenre of film that becomes known as chopsaki. So if you're a film genre film nerd, you might know about chopsaki. And that is a yeah. that is taking the word the term chopsui and sakatumi and sort of smashing them together. And it's basically like low budget martial arts films, right? But yeah. people knew what that was then. So now it's so weird because when you hear that song, it A feels pretty racist. And second, you're like, why in the world would anyone write this song? But it was like, it's almost like a novelty song about, if somebody wrote a novelty song about TikTok now or something, right? You know what I mean? Like, it, there is a cultural touchstone that may not make sense 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years in the future out of the context. But at the time, it totally resonated with people because people knew this subgenre of film. So this becomes a, a massive hit. Oh, yeah. And, it, you For know, sure. it, it's literally considered one of the best-selling singles of all time. Yeah, it, so this is how Bidu makes a name for himself, and he ends up hiring the session guys, Trevor and Jeff, who we just spoke about, and they'll go to work with him, be influenced by him, and they start this band with the squished-up name. Ha, see what I did there? The Buggles. <laughs> and, if you, and if you read more about them you'll see where that influence that influence is and the two of them will then bring in another guy named bruce woolley that they meet on the scene because they're just playing in pickup bands and stuff still and in 77 that trio starts recording demos and one of those demos that they record as early as 77 is video kill the radio star they try shopping those demos around for several years and don't get much traction until chris blackwell someone we love to talk about on this show he hears it makes them an offer, and they end up on Island Records. So interesting facts about Video Killed, the radio star. So I I looked up Tina Charles because I wanted to see who she was. Uh, And so she sang on the demo of Video Killed, the radio star. Oh, really? But but didn't sing in the studio version that we listened to. Oh, that's interesting. That that would be a sort of fun thing, like as a factoid, if she had. That's funny. I wonder why they decided to replace her. Yeah, yeah. And the song was mostly written by Bruce, and he ends up leaving the band before the song actually comes Dude, out. Dude, that sucks. Wouldn't you be so mad if you were like, ah, oh, this band, no way, whatever, just keep my song, and then that's the, that's the song? Uh, the other thing we got to point out about the Buggles here, though, is the timeline, because it's important to this story. The single, Video Killed, gets released in 1979, and it becomes a hit in 16 countries. But the moment that they've gone down in history for 
is being the first video played on MTV, which doesn't happen until the end of 81. So there's actually this two-year gap between the song being a hit and the emergence of MTV. I just, in my brain, sort of smashed them to 81, right? But they've got this couple of years where they're doing pretty good. This is where our story takes place, is in this gap, in between the song becoming a hit and it being on MTV. And so that first record comes out, it's buoyed by this song, and then they'll go back into the studio to make a second record. Back to Brian Lane. He has a band fracturing, right? He has Yes, who's fallen apart, but he also has a band ascending, and that's the Buggles. And so he decides that maybe... This new band can help out this old band with some songwriting. Yeah, so I don't know if anybody had the Buggles first record because, you know, there's a couple tracks that are on there that are good and the rest of it is is just not really good. So <laughs> it's like they, they're figuring it out. You know, it's it nothing really hits they, at all. They so. were doing a lot of experimenting in the studio. So as weird right. as it sounds for Yes to play with the Buggles, who we think of as a new wave band. If you think of them from the aspect of their experimentalism and how into playing around with things they were, it makes a little more sense. Lane asks the twosome from the Buggles if they would write something for Hal, Squire, and White, the remaining trio of Yes members. And then they get invited to go to Chris Squire's mansion, and Horn has to play this song they came up with, and it's called We Can Fly From Here. Now, the guys in Yes like it well enough to just ask Trevor and Jeff, why don't you come to our recording session? Uh, Because we're making this new album. Wait, tell me which album it is. Oh, Oh, it's the album called Drama. (laughs) How perfect, right? Right, yeah. So wait, so but they do they just think this is a collaboration? Yeah, yeah. So the story goes that they don't know that Anderson's not in the band. So oh, they've only met oh, with the other guys, weird. but they no one tells them that John Anderson and Rick Wakeman have left. They go thinking they're just going to be in the studio. And they're oh. studio guys. This is how they've cut their teeth. Normal stuff for them to show up with uh, another band unit and just be in the studio with them as, as needed. But they get there and suddenly start to realize by like how things are intonated that they're expected now to actually sing and do lead vocals and play keyboards did the man did brian did he sign off on that so this is where the story gets murky if you read a summary of this story like if you just run across this in the wild somewhere as in some sort of compilation of weird things that happen in music history you're basically going to get this pitched that like brian lane introduced the two bands and like told them to merge and he ruined yes that's sort of the rumor (laughs) version of this story (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just want to say, Kenny, word up. This is a great letter. And man, I'm glad we got here. Because this is fantastic. In the story. louder sound retrospective that I keep referencing, wow. though, this is not the story that our boy Brian Lane tells. This is what he says I was in the hospital having surgery, and the following happened. Chris Squire, Steve Howe, and Alan White took it upon themselves to fire John. 
Rick then left the band in sympathy, and I got out of the hospital and discovered they had appointed Trevor Horn as the new lead singer and Jeff Downs as the new keyboard player overnight. Yes had become maybe. Oh, that's some dirty pool, man. <laughs> Nasty. Throwing a punch. So, th- so this is yeah, what I was referencing is. up at the top. Wow. Yes thinks that... <laughs> Okay, because spoiler alert, this does not go well. Okay, let's just go ahead and get there real quickly. It does not go well. And so, yes, we'll say that this was all Chris, or this was all Brian Lane's idea. And Brian Lane will say this was all Chris Squire's idea. And basically that yes ruined themselves and it had nothing to do with him. But here's the crazy thing, right? Once the band had made this decision, he as the manager feels like it's now his duty to support the band. But he has to he realizes that the record label is going to be pissed. So what, what label is? Yes. Atlantic records. Ahmed Erdogan. They have to get him to sign off on this. Imagine this. You've been in the hospital. The biggest band you manage tells you when you get out that they've invited your other band into their band, which now this creates a problem for him too, right? Because he, that was two lines of business and now it's one not only do you have to be cool with it you now have to stick your neck out call the head of atlantic records and be like so uh yes made this decision Ahmed Erdogan gets on a plane flies to london and waits for a private uh showcase of this new buggles infected version of yes before he will sign off wow um it, it's it's wild now he does he signs off on it. But here's the thing. Lane had already booked a tour to support the record. And this isn't the age of the internet. So no one knows that anything has gone bad. And yes. So all these people have bought tickets. And then they announce that the tour is now a different lineup of yes. And ticket sales just stop. Screeching halt. Yeah. <laughs> so well. they, they go out and they do the tour with Trevor and Jeff. And it's not great. And this is a quote from from Brian Lane. At the post-mortem meeting, the band decided it was my fault. They had a post-mortem meeting, Brian. (laughs) As soon as I saw that quote, I was like, there's no way we're getting past this without Murdoch talking about, oh, I think we're going to do a post-mortem. We used to work with a guy who had a really deep voice, and every time we did an event, he would be like, halfway through the event, we'd be like feeling good about it, and then he would walk by us and just go, I think we'll have to have a post-mortem about this. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> what did we do? Hey, I, yeah, and I would feel really bad. All of a sudden, I wanted to like turn around to him and be like, funeral held for the depression of man holds the key to his own death, <laughs> entering a tomb of a corpse yet, and, and say the lyrics for postmortem uh, oh, by Slayer. But so, that's fine. So they do hold this review meeting about the tour, and the band decided it was my fault that their tour had not succeeded. And by mutual agreement, I quit having suggested to them that to re-energize the band, what they needed to do was go to John Anderson's house. And when he opened the door, throw themselves at his feet and beg him to come back. (laughs) Oh man. In the space of five minutes, I'd lost yes. And the buggles. And I was sitting in an empty office. No, it's it, it's not yeah. as dire as it sounds. The the next day, Steve Howe and Jeff Downs will come to Lane, pay him a surprise visit. They'll apologize for how things went down, and then they'll say maybe we should try to form a different band. And this is 
marks the end of Yes and the beginning of some super groups and some other projects and some, you know, there's there's tours where different members of Yes tour just under their last names. There's a lot of stuff that will happen in the years to come. But the core period of, of Yes ends after this. After this tour with the Buggles. Can we talk about Asia? Dude, I love some of those Asia songs unapologetically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, like, obviously, heat of the moment is the thing, and when it was in Forty Old Virgin, that probably introduced yeah. that song to a lot of people because it was very funny. But I like only time will tell. Oh like yeah, that one. Asia was great. I also uh, sort of lost a job in radio over booking Asia one time for a music festival. <laughs> that happened. Uh, and it was like not, I had to specify which version of Asia it was. And I just remember I kept getting calls about using the wrong, like you didn't put featuring so-and-so and I forget who it was that was touring under the Asia name at the time, but it was very complicated. It is a funny side note, though. Like, I didn't know this about Yes either. So, Yes then comes back around, right? They're around, like, basically forever. They may still yeah. play out. The way they come back around is that they're officially done in 81, and then Trevor Horn and several of the members will start another band in 82. And it's called Cinema. And it's not meant to be a continuation of Yes. It's just some of these people who all know each other from that scene. In that particular band. And so they start cinema. Trevor Horn has some personality conflicts within the band. And so he's in and out of it. He's around for a little bit. And then he eventually leaves the project altogether. Then they will actually be uh, some of the members of this version of the group will run into John Anderson, like at a party and say like, dude, you should come record with us. We're working on this project. And like, you know, it's all under the bridge. Why don't you come record? So they basically end up getting most of yes back together, but they're playing under this name cinema. And so the record label comes to them and it's like, you got to change your name back to uh, yes. You got to change, change your name back to yes. <laughs> so it was like not their decision. Like they, they basically got pressured into being yes. Otherwise, yes might have ended forever in 81. But they basically like, because they were mostly yes, it was going to be much easier to sell. And so they got pressured back into becoming yes again. Wow. They could have been such a bigger band if there were certain types of, rock and roll that was on the radio drama was their i want to say 10th record and they'd been around between 10 and 12 years depending on how you count it so i mean they were putting stuff out yearly and doing solo records and other projects and so they were very very prolific now i do believe that it was either tomato or drama which ended up with like i think nine tracks on it and it was 
the most tracks that had ever been on a Yes album because the songs are so long that most of them yeah. had way less than nine tracks, you know, on a, on a vinyl LP as it would have been put out in the day. What an awesome letter, <laughs> Kenny. I mean, what a because I, I mean, having having a having a letter about like, can you tell us a story about someone that ruined a band? Like, yeah, man, sure. Let's. And, I mean, if that's the guy it's who out, says like, it wasn't his there, fault, it wasn't his fault. I mean, I, I do feel like. I mean, I don't know. This is one of those he said, she said things, right? Like, I can see it from both of their angles. And and when you read, depending on what you read, there are like there have been some narrative storylines that have been propagated, right? Like, you know, I've read stuff that says like, well, you know, the Buggles and Yes recorded next to each other in the same studio, and that's how they got to be friends, and then they naturally found this partnership. And, you know, and then you read some of that stuff from Brian Lane. It sounds like he didn't even know they knew each other, and then all of a sudden they were just one band. You know, so like everybody's sort of yeah. telling their version of the story, but it, it is fascinating nonetheless. And, you know, I will say Brian Lane sort of like – rode out his career and is still alive and uh, doing pretty well and not a total asshole in terms of managers. Like, I'm happy to have an episode where we're talking about, you know, a guy who seems fairly nice. Yeah, and at the beginning, I, I was going to give him, not give him the benefit of the doubt and be like, let tell us about this man <laughs> that took all of the people's money that had made all the, made all, that made the art and then the money was gone from their Listen, art. Sometimes it is actually the, the egotistical musician's fault. You know, you can't always blame the manager. Just, just most of the time. Uh, well, sure. Listen, you can get involved in the show in a plethora of ways. Uh, Patreon.com is a way you can support the show and get extra episodes every month and a weekly newsletter. Um, you can also check us out on in Instagram at uh, rock and roll bedtime stories, just backslash. Uh, and then you can get involved. We are the story guys, gmail.com. That's an easy way to send us an email in case you want to send us uh, on a treasure hunt like uh, Kenny did this week. Uh, we, we always appreciate it. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.